and welcome to the IT News Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Webber. In this week's episode, we'll be speaking with Doe founder and CEO, Andy Taylor, on the financial management app's journey, future plans, and how it intends to use automation to shift the customer experience from self-service to self-driving. So thanks for joining us today, Andy. First up, I was just wondering if you could give listeners a quick rundown on what Doe is and its mission. Sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to start at the beginning. Well, look, Doe is really a financial wellness platform, specifically a money management platform that we've been building out to really help everyday Australians uh, better manage and grow their money. And I guess what that means is helping them smooth their cash flow, save and invest more to build long-term wealth on autopilot, which is the automation element that we've been leaning into for some time around through, through the process of dollar cost averaging, getting people to invest in a diversified portfolio to take a long-term view on, on investing. So yeah, we're app-based and now solely focused on Australia. So that's some pretty good ambitions you have in there. And I know it's about making Australians a bit more financially minded, I guess, not just a place to hold money. I was just wondering, I guess, right from the get-go in building this financial super app, if you will, where do you even begin? It's a really good question. I guess where we started uh, a few years ago when we focused on the US market was with the bank account and card and everyday spending. You know, we really try to focus on building money management tools around the bank accounts. So we were issuing our own bank account with a partner, getting people to pay their salary in to that bank account, and then helping them manage and grow their money off the back of that. I think what, what we learned in America though, which I guess saying it out loud probably sounds like common sense now, but to get people to trust us and bank with us every day was quite a tall order, especially when you're talking about a brand new fintech brand that no one's heard of. So what we saw was people putting in small amounts of money to test this out, to build the trust. So when we made the move back to Australia, I guess what we try to focus on was saying, look, let's not try and solve this problem by trying to be the bank account and say, look, Mr. Customer, the way that you need to unlock the value of this platform is by paying your salary into a Doe bank account. Instead, we took the approach of uh, using open banking or connect, allowing people to connect their existing banking relationships into the platform and acting as a companion app to that main banking relationship. And then over time, if it makes sense for customers to switch their payroll and use this as an everyday bank account, then that's great. But ultimately the features that we're leaning into here to, to deliver on that behavior is cash flow smoothing through our installment-based credit products and everyday spending card uh, with a bank account that can drive cash rewards, which we're investing on behalf of customers into a managed portfolio, and then also letting customers regular amounts when they get paid into that diversified portfolio on our platform. There's a lot there, and we've definitely learned a lot as we've pivoted from the US and and focused here. And yeah, just on that, is there a reason why you decided to start in the US and then branch out to Australia? Yeah, there was obviously much bigger market and the problem that we're looking to solve was, I'd probably say 10 times worse than than it is here in Australia from the premise that we were really going after this customer cohort that was living paycheck to paycheck. And there's, there's always a scary stat that we saw early on that 70% of Americans couldn't afford a $1,000 emergency expense. It was such a huge opportunity. And the interchange regime on card transactions over there was very high. So I guess where we were starting with on the bank account of card was 
a revenue stream that could underpin this until we added in more revenue streams. Obviously, as you're aware, it, it's quite highly regulated here in Australia. So, but that's why we're starting. I think initially off the back of the IPO, we had the financial strength to really take on that market. But I think as market conditions changed, you know, our ability to operate in that market was severely hampered just due to, I guess, the nature of the weakening of the Australian dollar against the US dollar and the fact that like all other tech companies, we saw a massive compression in our share price. So our ability to raise money to compete is always going to be quite tough, uh, which, which is why we made the sad decision to pull out. Well, at least here in Australia, it seems to be <laughs> taking off quite well. It seems like you've had a, quite a bit of a success. I can see, you know, looking over all the announcements, you're bringing in new products. And I was just wondering, just on some of the features you guys have introduced, I know uh, we'll talk about a little bit this later in more in depth, but I was just wondering mm-hmm. since you were found in 2016, it doesn't feel that long ago, but in terms of the financial and tech space, many banking apps have shifted beyond just the digital place for consumers to hold and move money. And many of these mainstream banking apps, uh, they've also ramped up their own offerings to now include a lot of things that you guys did from the get-go there's budgeting tools tracking other personal financial management features just wondering have you found that there's suddenly been quite a more uh, focused on that type of uh, personal financial management uh, capabilities that people now really want and that the market's really answering uh, yes and yes and no i i think we saw a lot of the pfm tools weren't actually getting used and i think that's why we really pivoted to becoming more of an investing platform to educate people around dollar cost averaging and and what it means to responsibly invest. I think if you look at the banks and a lot of other monoline competitors that we have, they're very focused on the talking to active traders on the platform, whereas we're taking the approach to to educate savers to invest in a diversified portfolio and take a long-term view. And I think that's where the opportunity is. Banks typically are uh, what I sort of legacy feature based in terms of the products that they offer and they're trying to bundle it all in together. You know, it's not really succinctly integrated, but I think this emerging customer that we're talking to, which is this young person in their twenties that is really now looking at property as completely out of reach in terms of wealth creation and, and are all about investing. They're, they're a lot more savvy than, than the older generation and how they go about that. So I think sh- share trading through compound interest is where that's going to come from and investing in ETFs and things like that. When we say money management, that's really what we're talking about now. It's not about pretty graphs in the banking app that don't really tell you anything. And, and that's just through experience and what we've seen. Would you say that's the biggest differentiator between yourself and I guess other features and products in the market? You try to target that more in-depth understanding of wealth? Yeah, I would. And try to bring together core functionality into one app. I think a lot of the research we did early on was, I think on average, you know, this cohort had over seven different financial apps on their phone. The money was spread across all these different apps. The whole notion of a super app, which is if you can bring these key functionalities into one app where they can get a single view of their money, is all about greater convenience. And then the education and the automation, especially through artificial intelligence, is there to start to help customers become better investors. Because there's a lot of fear around investing that we've seen, a lot of lack of education, especially now that the market's turned and those people that got into it in the last 18 months 
for the first time, lost a lot of money, you know, buying the hype of crypto and, and some of these meme stocks. It comes back to just adopting healthy money habits, which is automating a sweep into a portfolio when you get paid. It's just, that's why you, we say you can invest from as little as a dollar. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to invest a lot. Uh, it's fractionalized share trading in that sense. Yeah, because I do believe earlier this year, April, I think it may have been, you did introduce a bit of a chat GPT capabilities for that micro investing. Have you noticed a real acceleration of the plans you were talking about? Yeah, we've actually pulled back on it. So I think we probably got quite excited about technology. And then I think well, once we dug deeper and started to test that, you know, internally, we realized the limitations of obviously the, the privacy aspect of customers sharing data with ChatGPT. It's pretty, pretty scary. And we needed to be very conscious that we're not regulated to give financial advice. So the way that we were wanting to use this was really just to help customers get access to information more easily on the stocks that they're looking to invest in and educate. So we really pull back on that and taking more of a watching brief on how it evolves. But it, it's certainly really interesting. I think where we saw this going was portfolio construction, actually having the AI almost become the algorithm on the trading you know, as a self-directed trading mechanism and allowing this is back to the autopilot functionality we always envisaged, which was there's going to be some customers that will trust the algorithm and will turn it onto autopilot to manage their money for them and invest their money for them. That was always the holy grail for us. But I still think we've got a long way to go, long way to go on that. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I never would have thought I would hear someone put limitations and chat GPT in the same sentence. It seems to be some amazing technology fast track uh, piece for so many people but it is interesting you guys identified it might not be the best fit for you and so I guess with this waiting and watching is there anything in particular you look for in the concept of generative AI for you to trust to bring it back in because it is quite authoritative when it gives information and when you are dealing with people's wealth it can be a bit scary to have someone put so much trust in a very, very new piece of technology. I think that's it, right? Especially when we're in the early stages of building a brand, training that and with context and making it non-biased is, you know, when, when you start to peel back the layers, you go, oh my gosh, the risks of this blowing up in our face as a brand are pretty high, especially when we haven't even got the trust of the user. It'd be different if we were CBA or a big bank, but I think in this context, building trust with users is so crucial. So I think we just got a bit scared with what sort of answers would come back to people. It's just not within our control and it may not be on brand for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's guardrails, really. We talk a lot about guardrails. It's how do you put guardrails around it and train, train your own model effectively. Yeah, and as you say, there is also that piece around people having to hand over their personal details to this very brand new technology. And as you say, that also probably plays a little bit. You don't always know where that information ends up. So yeah, so that I guess will be a very interesting space for you guys to watch because obviously it's not just ChatGPT anymore. There's so many other models coming into market and I'm sure there's so many other wealth management platforms out there definitely looking into similar things. But the idea of talking about an automated AI to help people invest and where to invest. And I was wondering, around June 2022, the Neobank, Vault Bank, did close its doors and it did result in Doe's plan to offer traditional core banking services in Australia via a, a partnership with Rails Bank, or as it's known in Australia, Rails Pay. 
couldn't could no longer go through. I was just wondering how you guys have pivoted from that setback. Yeah, no, it was certainly a pretty challenging time. I think we were taken by surprise as much as the market was. We had no real idea that was going to happen. And we were already testing cards live, about to roll them out. Unfortunately, that ripped up six months worth of work. Um, and I guess we were forced to find another partner, which, you know, as you know, these things take time. And I just don't think investors, quite frankly, we had the patience to, to take another 12 months to, to not launch something. So we decided to roll out the platform in two phases. One was launch the, the micro-investing proposition, which was already built out, and decouple that from the banking infrastructure revolt and launch that as a standalone, which we did. And then saw some work with new partners to enable us to do the banking config, which we recently announced we rolled that out into a closed sort of public beta on the card, but we've launched the credit piece now. So what Vault were giving us was not only issuing capabilities, they're giving us a balance sheet as well. And to find that combination, it's quite hard. So it took us a bit of time to, to get those new suppliers locked in and again, take stock on the product config, do another round of market research, just to make sure that what we were going to launch was going to really resonate. And I think it was a blessing because we've actually ended up with a far stronger proposition than we had a year ago in terms of what we're bringing to market now. I guess you can look at it as a positive. Turning lemon into lemonades, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was just wondering, um, who did you end up with? Yeah, so we've, there's a combination of partnerships. So the underlying ADI is actually Cascal, should have still a value solution. And we're enabled, that's enabled through a partnership with Zai. Um, and then we've got wonderful which is a fintech here that are doing the issuing with MasterCard and I guess providing us access to that store value solution via, via Zai, as well as providing the loan funding. We're trying to maintain this capital light platform positioning, which we're not looking to take on any balance sheet risk, whether it be on the investing side or the lending side, we're, we're purely a fintech platform working with partners. So there's, there's quite a, there's quite a few partners that come into this to make it work. Yeah, it definitely seems like a balance of partners, as you say. Do you think you'll ever reach a point where you want to go for a full banking or ADI license? Would that kind of ease some of this need for partners to use their banking platforms at all? I really don't. It adds no value and just adds unnecessary cost. And as I think Walt, Zinja all shand out the hard way. And bank accounts are completely commoditized. You know, there is no need to have one. I think where we logically vertically integrate over time is probably we take on some of the issuing and um, maybe we do look at becoming a non-bank lender over time, should it make sense. But I think for us, if anything, where our future lies is becoming more of a fund manager on the wealth management side, which is really where the margin is. I think we're in a fortunate position because we've got quite a few revenue streams now coming together. And I guess what we're going to be proving out now is as we scale up the customer base is what does that look like from a gross margin point of view? How do you value a business like that? Is it a software as a service business? Is it, you know, a payments business? Um, I think we fall into so many different sectors here because we're bringing two worlds into one. It's going to be quite interesting. Yeah. And just with all the partners and investors you have, is that sort of where the newly launched Investor Hub recently released? But that, that was just really a mechanism of better engaging, you know, our investor base. And I think yeah, as a listed company, obviously you're, you're quite reliant on antics announcements to inform. And we never really had a proper forum that you could engage with your own 
shareholders and then keep them up to date and answer questions. It's typically email-based. It, it's really just a better way to engage our investors and, and um, potential new investors. And I know we just touched on this earlier, but I know July saw Doe enter phase two of its pay now, pay later rollout. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you could give a quick rundown on what pay now or pay later is. I guess how it's different from the standard buy now, pay later. Yeah, really hoping you'd ask me this question because I think this is where it's quite exciting for us because I think we're pioneering a new category here. You know, when we did our research, we saw four core quadrants. There was buy now, pay later, there was digital banking, there was digital investing, and then there was what I call digital rewards. And I think what the pay now, pay later stock back proposition is designed to do is saying, look, we're going to issue you one card. It's actually a hybrid card, so it, it acts as a debit card as well as a credit card. Now, it comes with a line of credit attached to it, but it's an installment-based product like traditional buy now, pay later. But instead of the merchant paying or funding that cost of credit, it is a customer fee model. So the customer is paying for that uh, fixed line of credit as they draw it out. And the way that works is really saying, hey, Mr. Customer, you can, we want you to use this card for everyday spending. And... Every dollar that you spend on it, we're going to give you what we call stockback rewards, which is our proprietary cashback program that we invest that cashback into your managed portfolio to help you grow your money. So the customer can decide at a transactional level if they want to pay now, which will mean it will come straight out of their Doe bank account through the card, a debit transaction, or, or pay later, which would effectively draw down on the line of credit and convert that into an installment plan. So it's a pretty cool product. And I think where we really saw the research was is back to this convenience of I just want one card in my wallet that can straddle these two worlds, you know? So I guess if my understanding's right, it's not obviously it doesn't operate hundred percent like buy now, pay later, but I know one big criticism of buy now, pay later was that it was just like a credit card, really, <laughs> just with a different name. But you're saying this kind of avoids a lot of those same pitfalls? No, look at buy now, pay later. Traditionally, the business model around that is a merchant-funded credit model, right? Which, as, as we've seen now with rising interest rates, that model is under threat if, slash flawed because if interest rates are 5.5% and the, you're charging the merchant 4%, it doesn't cover the cost of credit, let alone make margin to the business. What we're really up against here is traditional credit cards that are structured to cap to get people into a revolving debt cycle, right? Yeah, you're relying on paying the monthly minimum, which 80% of the market doesn't. And then you're compounding your outstanding credit into a revolving debt cycle. The beautiful thing about installments is that it is designed for you to pay off as quickly as possible. Uh, there is no compounding revolving nature to it. It is a table loan construct. And I think what's been quite disturbing for us, especially over the last 12 months now, is you're seeing now a big rise in credit card applications again due to people's financial states, their household debt levels. Credit cards are the evil product here. They've been around for, I don't know, 60 years. And I think on average, it takes you over three years now to pay off a credit card. That's insane. Think how much interest people are paying. So look, buy now, pay later, I've always believed it was a brilliant product, responsible products. I guess where it's got a lot of bad press is some of them, not all of them, were not doing proper affordability assessments and credit checks on, on people. Um, now we are doing soft credit checks on people. We are doing affordability assessment. So I think that's very important. So you feel this is, a, I guess, a much safer payment option 
for the average Australian consumer. Is there, would there be regulation about this if it's, because I believe you're the first to kind of bring this product to market. I know buy now, pay later <laughs> still has a lot of yeah. regulation confusion around that. How would this fit into that? Well, I think uh, this is operating as an, it's classified as an unregulated product initially. We are working on a regulated component to this. Just the way we originally looked at it was we're only approving people for up to $500 limits and they're paying that back within a 30 day period to pay for a model over 30 days. And then should they want to expand on that line of credit with more flexible repayment terms, we, we push them into a fully regulated construct. I think with the pending changes to the, to the regulation now, this will entirely become a regulated product uh, over time. But look, uh, as I mentioned, even we're doing affordability assessments as an unregulated product. For us, it's very important that we, we honor that because that's our brand. We're here to help you live financially healthier. You know, what whilst what we saw was that people are using credit cards, the best way to try and stop them using that is create a better product rather than ignore the fact that it's happening. You know, really our pitch here to customers is we'll help you smooth your cash flow should you need it. But ultimately we're here to help you save and invest your money. Um, and then stock back as a reward mechanism is amazing because we're helping you do that every time you spend. So it, I think for this younger generation who are absolutely addicted to cashback rewards. And, and we saw this in America, a much bigger market for cashback rewards. We really think this is going to resonate well. And I think we already touched on this earlier about some of the products you guys have recently launched. I was just wondering, uh, you guys have launched, I think, a share portfolio feature and a cash advance spot chart. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering what these features do. I guess it sounds like guys are attracting like a bit of a younger demographic and you just mentioned they definitely love their cash backs awards just wondering what these new features kind of allow to do and how it feeds into how the younger generations are managing their money yeah so i guess everything we built is designed to get our flywheel moving faster by getting people in and i think the insight we got was a lot of people are scared about investing or a lot of people don't know where to start when it comes to investing, I'm talking about everyday Australians, right? Outside of their superannuation. So we said, what is the best way to get people investing without realizing, without having this huge educational hurdle? So giving people access to the cards when it's launched with this stock back rewards program that we built, which says every dollar you spend on the card will convert that and invest that for you into a portfolio on the platform, you just choose the portfolio you want. So if you look at our portfolios, they're risk-weighted, managed by BlackRock. So you've got the world's largest asset manager managing these portfolios. And people just choose their risk tolerance, really. And then ultimately, the job here is to get people comfortable with investing with effectively free money, which we're giving them. Once they hopefully see the impact that's having the growth on that at a low level, will hopefully upsell them and convince them to start to contribute their own money, their own savings when they get paid. As I said, it has to be, it can only be $50 a week, $100 a week, it doesn't matter. But if we can convince people to set up a recurring investment plan using their own money and set and forget that, you know, this is my savings plan, this is how I'm going to save and watch it grow, that's the ultimate goal here. So... You know, the new features that we rolled out, the Everest portfolio is our newest portfolio. It's a really cool product because we've actually now got a product that's aggregating the top 100 ETFs. It's exposure to a product that doesn't really exist. It's a pretty awesome product. 
But it just comes back to accelerating that goal, really, which is we believe financial independence and wealth comes from taking a long-term approach to invest in a diversified portfolio. And that's little bits every week. Don't try and beat the market because nobody can beat the market. And that's been proven time and time again. You know, Warren Buffett preaches about this. So yeah, that's the goal. So don't get my wealth advice from a crypto bro. No. And I was wondering, uh, just from a tech perspective, you know, just when you start to build an app in general, how do you go about thinking about creating a technology stack to create a forward-thinking digital money management app that will obviously have to continually innovate, incorporate new technologies, uh, and be intuitive enough where the user has that kind of ease of use. It doesn't sound like an easy task, but so far it seems like you guys are pulling it off. Yeah, I guess there's two things. There's the back end and there's the front end. I guess the great thing about being a startup is you get to start with a blank sheet of paper in terms of how you want to build the latest and greatest tech stack. So I think this is the core value in our business is what we've built over the last four years. We're not hampered by any legacy like a bank. We've been able to build a brand new architecture here that is fast and scalable, modularized. And then on the front end, from the app experience, we've taken a quality approach to building a native app experience rather than utilizing some of this hybrid technology, which is typically compromised in terms of quality in terms of customer experience and our design aesthetics is clear, clean and simple, right? Because the cleaner and, and simpler you can make things for the user, the more intuitive it becomes. And I think you only have to look at Apple and Google from a UX point of view to see that proven out time and time again. Yeah. Educating this audience whilst they're very tech savvy is all comes back to trust and security and, and privacy. So giving customers confidence around that. Is obviously, especially what's happening lately around some of these breaches with some of these big corporates, it's just put everyone on high alert to how do you double down security of your device? And if anything, I know we sounds crazy, but I, I think a company of our size is able to be more, more buttoned down from a security point of view using the latest tools than a big legacy business like a, a Latitude or an Optus that got pinged because they probably have so many holes and, and so many band-aids plastered over legacy tech that identifying these breaches from a fraudster's point of view might be quite easy. So I find it quite interesting, but it certainly heightens the need to the brands that win in this new world are the ones that are safe, secure, and trusted. So how do you build a trusted brand? Yeah. And as you mentioned, I guess being so new, you guys wouldn't have the legacy systems. You guys are brand new from the get-go. So in a way, it uh, must be very easy to be quite innovative and move fast. Do you also find because you're doing everything from scratch that can indirectly hamper anything at all? I'm a great believer in small teams can achieve big things. And I think we've proven that time and time again, that I think if you look at what we built or the size of the team we've had, it's pretty phenomenal. I think our team can do more than hundred person team at a big bank. But I guess, you know, that the constraint of any startup is always prioritization and focus. And this sort of comes back to getting product market fit now. And then we stop building some of the big features because we've been building big features for a long time and, and now actually really put the focus into optimizing what we hang around performance, uh, but also features usage and, and getting customer feedback on how we can make those improvements because you, you only have so much resource. So you've got to make sure you deploy it in the right way. And I was wondering what's coming up next for you guys. You have seemed to have rolled out quite a few new products. And I'm just wondering if there's anything you're most excited about in the upcoming year. 
I'm just really excited about getting this card publicly launched. And I think once we've got that cemented, it's really just building it down and, and scaling up the customer base now. I think investors are impatient, quite rightly, now that we've building, been building for a long time. It's time to commercialize what we've built. So onboarding customers, scaling up that revenue story. And then looking at what we prioritize. I think the one product we mentioned before that we're looking at is how do we introduce a high interest savings yield product into this that can compete the banks at, at a headline rate. And I think what we're looking at there is more of a, a managed investment scheme structure that can invest in cash-based liquid assets to deliver a, a superior return. Um, we think we think a high interest cash rate is quite important now in, in this market of high interest rates. Um, and then obviously ASX trading, we talked about that for I'll bring that into the proposition. Uh, I think will be quite important in the next little while. So there's there's certainly no shortage of new features we we can build. I think we just have to be guided by the the customer base now on on what that priority needs to look like. And just my final question, I was just wondering if there was any reason behind the decisioning to bring in that extra U. Look, the brand was created for America because obviously it's slang for money, being that we're all about money. But getting Doe.com one was very expensive and it was taken. But then when you looked at the brand story here, it's going to sound really corny, but because artificial intelligence and, and personalization was at its core, we were saying we're building a proposition for you, right? It, it's all about you. The extra you as an emphasis in there is thinking. has a few points behind it, but I think what's cool about it is it's recognizable and we kind of own our Google juice on it, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's... It's like it's creating more dough for you. Is that right? Nice. I'm going to write that, I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Just wondering if there's anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with at all. Thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity to talk through what we're doing. It's, it's great. Yeah. Watch the space and please support us. And thank you so much for supporting us, Kate, as well. It means a lot. No, it's also great. always great to see new financial apps with good intentions coming onto the market and helping educate consumers about best ways to invest and grow wealth. Seems like it gets harder every day with all these interest rates. Yeah, I just think genuinely people are scared right now, which we've seen everybody's hoarding cash in the high interest savings account. And that's actually the worst thing you could possibly do (laughs) (laughs) because inflation is just eroding the value of that money by the day. So we've got to get people investing and get the benefits of compound interest. So that's the message that we're preaching. It, It is financially unhealthy to have your money sitting in a savings account long term you know and that was doe founder and ceo andy taylor speaking with us here at it news all about its ambitions to reimagine money management and its tech plans to see this through we'll be back next week with another great episode to stay up to date with the latest in technology news be sure to check out itnews.com.au